This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 521 for August 17th, 2016. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast, folks. I'm Glenn Fleischman, the senior contributor at Macworld, and joining me, as she is nearly every week, Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Howdy, Glenn. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's it's still the doldrums of summer, although, you know, things aren't as quiet this summer as I'd say in some previous ones, and we're all getting geared up for uh, a period of time that we believe is probably around the first week in September, first full week, in which uh, all heck is going to break loose, and Apple will start announcing and shipping things, and then we will have a never-ending stream of products and updates uh, probably until next summer, so... I'm, sa- I'm worried it's going to be one of those things where if they don't refresh every Mac <laughs> and give us a new Apple Watch, that people are going to be upset. It, oh, people! Well, people are going to be upset anyway. That's what the Macalope's for. <laughs> so people, are, people are always upset about something. The Macalope has been in fine form lately. Oh if you God. haven't been caught up with the Macalope, I I suggest you go do a little reading. It's uh, that uh, antlered Mac classic format is uh, always got things to say. It's just it's frustrating to me as someone who follows a company so closely because I don't we talk about this all the time we're not like in the in you know what they call it uh, uh, in bed with Apple or in the tank for Apple I think that's more thing like we make our living discussing they don't even like us very much yeah, I know they don't invite us they don't invite <laughs> that's they the don't funny call. thing when people think that you know like yeah we're I'm like no they they don't even really like us right Mac, anyway Macworld is well Macworld is is critical in the sense of not negative, but in the sense of critique. Like it, that's the thing is we write about a lot of things and some of them are things Apple would prefer we don't write about. We, you know, we point out foibles and zits, but also the good stuff. So it's frustrating inside that to constantly have people, it's like, dudes, if you're going to criticize Apple, would you at least do it well? Like you, things you're, <laughs> like there's so many things you could critique it, especially with, you know, growth, you know, having an abnormal 2015, it looks like 2016 or abnormal previous fiscal year and it's in a period of what seems like much slower growth the ipad stalled even with new models um where is the innovation going to come from they're massively profitable but how are they going to get into the next generation like they're in a they're in a real um for the first time i would say apple is legitimately in like a lull and we know stuff is coming they're not sitting there they always eat their darlings and kill their babies and all the rest but the legitimate question right now isn't like is Apple doomed? Is it lost its mojo? But like, how do they cope with with this slight stall? Even when they know inside what's going on. So there's a lot to talk about that's negative. Um, you know, I put this second on our agenda. We should let's talk about the Cook interview first, and then we'll talk about other news. Uh, okay. Tim Cook was uh, uh, so I think this actually comes out of the same thing that like stalled uh, rabbit or stalled uh, growth comes out of is that uh, suddenly Apple's very chatty. Um, hey, <laughs> yeah. oh, hey, Tim's on the phone. He wants to talk. Oh, hey, Tim, what's going on? Okay, yeah, nope, sorry, gotta go. I got, yeah, all right, I'll talk to you later. Um, <laughs> Tim and the gang are talking to lots of folks. They talked to Fast Company. Uh, we talked about that last week. It was a sit down with three of them that was very interesting and yes. revealed a lot, like Apple Maps is why we do betas, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> and then uh, there was this great interview in. Uh, uh, I forget Washington the, Post. Thank you, Washington Post, which is a, a little surprising. Shout out to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Your good friend. Uh, uh, and uh, Cook was very, I would say, surprisingly personal. Like he's a fairly reserved guy, but I thought you can hear marketing. You know, you hear that tone, and the best marketers are the ones you don't know are actually marketing to you. And Tim Cook does marketing. He puts on the voice, and um, he puts on the tone, even when you're not hearing his words, you know, spoken aloud. And uh, I thought this interview just felt like he was being a little more honest, you know, not necessarily you expect from a CEO, not dishonesty, but being frank about, you know, it's lonely being a CEO. Hey, don't pity me, but it really is. I'm like, that sounds totally legitimate. Like, that actually sounds like a legitimate... A legitimate thing. Um, Do you have a chance to read this interview? It's interesting. Um, I read it a little bit. I need to read it again. Um, I was a little distracted yesterday. My son's school is closed, so Yay. I was. Uh, That's exciting. We, yeah, we were frolicking. <laughs> there were the a lot su- of Legos in my day yesterday. The so. summer, the summer adult, the summer uh, a time off, which uh, makes sense for the teachers. It's only it's a week. So, like, I mean, he's in you know preschool, so it's year round because it's basically daycare. Um, but yeah, so they get a week off and I was not prepared. I mean, I knew it was coming, but you know, like I have staffers out this week, so I couldn't just take vacation. It's, so anyway. it's summer. Nothing's supposed to happen, but well, it's just, so Cook in this interview, 
he's I would say he is saying things that we we know and suspect and he's sort of reaffirming them and whether how accurate it is that's cool but it's like you know he's talking about the difficulty of where how this next stage of the market transitions for instance like the fact that PC sales you know we're transitioning into um, there's still a lot of smartphones to be sold so it's not like we've reached the end of growth for smartphone. Android still captures a good hunk of that market. Android has changed a lot in the last few years, I think, for the better. I think it offers more effective competition as an operating system. And because the hardware uh, ramp has gone way up, you can get really good Android phones that are really, really cheap now and buy them outright, not have a contract. So Apple's facing some of that innovator dilemma competition. You know, iOS and Android are two very different things. But if you only use a handful of apps, how different are they? to you is like you know it's that question about like as a could a chromebook fulfill your needs instead of a laptop windows or mac or linux um so i think yeah, that's a question kind of interesting like the trend was always towards like more powerful like you know, things that could do more and stuff and now it's like we're almost seeing that reverse a little bit in some areas like in in phones and, and in things it's like i mean android now they're trying to 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 get you in and out and and with ios too they're trying to get you in and out to do these tasks without using apps yeah and then you know they're saying oh you don't need a laptop like get a tablet and and we're kind of like pulling back a little bit to get just sort of like the minimum viable product to do what you need to do. That's the next market though, right? That's India and uh, China. It's developing world. It's parts of developed worlds where people don't, you know, if all you want to do is play certain games that can fit within the processor constraints uh, and you want to do email and Facebook and a few other things, like that's been my argument about the kind of um, the, what, where the direction Mac went, Mac OS 10. I think it, was a little mistake in some ways because it's became more and more insular. I think it's actually very hard these days to sit someone down in front of a Mac and just have them work. I think it's always been a little true. It was their first experience, but because the mobile experience is so superior in um, onboarding, right? You like sit down with the mobile phone and you just do stuff. You can hand it to someone who's never used one before and they can get up to speed. And I think the desktop world is, is really veered off a lot from that. So if you have a minimal set of needs, and you can get the right kind of keyboard or typing or glass arrangement that you like. You don't need a laptop, but you also don't need 500 apps. You need like 10 apps. Yeah. And then that's an awkward transition, too, for, you know, their uh, legacy customers. Yeah. Like we ran a column recently about, you know, w what if they aren't really interested in the pro market anymore? Because, yeah. you know, we haven't seen some of these pro machines get updated in any kind of timely manner, which isn't totally on Apple because they're waiting for you know, chipsets and things, but it's frustrating. Yeah, it's, um, it, I think these are all good questions. So that's when, when we talk about critiquing Apple, that's part of it. It's like, how did they, trans? I mean, they led the way in some ways into the post-PC world in a couple ways. One was by um, unshackling, I mean, Android did this first, sure, but let's say Apple did it a little better, the unshackling an iPhone from a computer. You no longer need iTunes. It took them too long to get there. But once mm -hmm. the iPhone could be used without a computer, I think that made a big difference, and that's been years now. The other is the iPad was the first good realization of a tablet that sold in any significant numbers, and it set the tone for the entire industry, and it cratered netbook sales. I mean, Chromebooks are finally coming back up. Cheap laptops are, but it destroyed the netbook market, which itself was sort of a quasi-post-PC transition. But now we're, like, in the middle of another one, you know? It's that – it's uh, it's – I think Apple is suffering from it because it's, we, it was rewarded so much by leading multiple phases of it. And now, uh, again, have to say, right, massively profitable. They still have growth. It's just not, um, you know, they had a step back and uh, they still have a lot of people they can sell devices to who don't own one now, not just Mac. So they have switchers, but they can also, you know, get uh, – get people to buy something new, something that they started with a feature phone. I still, I mean, there are a lot of feature phones out there. I still forget that. And then in America, that's shifted pretty rapidly, but in a lot of countries, uh, a lot of outside the uh, developed world, that's still not there because of cost and even in big pockets of the developed world. Um, uh, so yeah, we, I mean, Tim Cook says in here that Apple is the only company that can take hardware, software, and services and integrate those into an experience that's an aha for the customer. So, I mean, that used to be computers. Now it's mobile devices. But when you're looking out, you know, 10, 20 years from now, that's going to be everything. Like, um, you know, because software and services are being 
you know, put into everything. <laughs> like uh-huh. light switches are going to have software and services now. So, so yeah, I mean, it's they started this post PC thing, and now it's kind of you know it's it's snowballing, and they haven't you know gotten ahead of that yet. But just with their track record and with the talent that's there, and with the what we know they're putting into R and D, you know, I I, I think they're there's going to be good stuff ahead. And yeah, that one fiscal year was kind of an anomaly and now they're getting beat up in Wall Street. But, you know, every time they have um, an earnings call after that, they say, look, it's it's tough for us to think in, in three-month intervals. Like, that's just not really our DNA. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the stock market now works in thousands of a second interval in terms of, uh, of uh, computerized trading. Um, and people want to, I mean, you know, you watch the stock market, it's a, a sure way to get ulcers. Uh, it's it's really about long-term value and what you're getting out of it. And Apple has demonstrated already for a long time it has long-term value. And, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, I think they have a lot more ahead of them. The, app, the, the car thing, uh, you know, keeps getting bandied around. That's it, When that happens, it's still years away if, if they choose to ever do anything with it, too. Um, well, I would suggest folks who are interested in finding out more insight from what the CEO of Apple thinks about what Apple is doing and is willing to share it publicly. Uh, it's a good time to read this interview. It's um, yeah, it's cool that he's willing to kind of examine, you know, the five years that he's been in charge, kind of as a chunk. I wonder if you know we would get this kind of interview out of Steve Jobs. Probably not. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's just it, the thing I think about him that's fascinating is he seems to me to be a genuinely humble person. Um, who's really good at his job. It's that accent. It's, it is. And I have half my family is from the South, so I have that bias or a good hunk of my family's from the South. And, um, but uh, it just, it's just fascinating to me that someone could be, he doesn't seem arrogant to me, you know? No, me neither. The only time he seems arrogant is when he's righteous. And I think righteous arrogance is a good thing when he's fighting for a cause, whether it's, yeah. um, you know, preventing the government from having unfettered access to our private data without proper safeguards or uh, for rights of people, um, things like that. I think that's when you hear him try to assert a position, and I, I got I like righteousness. Uh, well, so that's Tim Cook, our friend Tim Cook. Never met him. I uh, never met Steve Jobs either, but I met people underneath there. But uh, I've been within his aura. Um, that's for all the Zardos fans out there. Uh, so uh, <laughs> all two of them. Um, so uh, some rumors coming out. I mean, this again, we talk about rumors all the time. And the funny part is when is we're in a sort of a post rumor age because there's so much information leaking and some of it gets confirmed. And, um, and because we know iPhone sevens are coming up, the information should be more accurate. So dual cameras in the iPhone seven, we have some details from uh, Mark Ehrman who's in his new job at Bloomberg. Uh, it's got that uh, linked out to um, a story he wrote there. It was kind of a roundup of iPhone 7 information. And uh, um, Susie, did you ever use the Lytro camera when that was uh, a thing? I think they were demoing it with a lot of tech publications. No, yeah. I remember that coming out. We had somebody else look at it for us. But so if people don't remember, it's like a little tube yeah, it, was it didn't look like factor. a camera. It looked kind of like like a spare battery or some you know some kind of like squared off sort of tube form factor, and it had a lens on one end. But the thing was, you could take pictures with it, and then you could change the focus after. So you would have the picture, I guess, on your computer or on your device, and you could adjust the focus. Yeah. Like it was a- it was able to somehow capture every point in focus, and then you could you could tweak it later. Yeah, it was a pretty cool um, idea. I don't think the implementation, it wound up being kind of gimmicky, I think was the problem. was and People who tried it really liked it, but it was really expensive. It was something that like nobody would buy except for like hardcore photography nerds, which is which is like a thing with iPhone. I mean, like there's so, the iPhone is probably the best camera I've ever owned. And it's cool that it keeps getting better as I get new iPhones. And there's all these extra things you can do. There's like lenses you can get and and different things. But unless it's built in, I'm never gonna do it. So, so this dual camera system is really intriguing because it's it's gonna really step up like what we have built in. 
It's pretty and let slick. people do new things. So does it let you take 3D pictures or? Well, I don't. Because that's know. like a trendy thing now too. Is like these these 360 things and 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 more kind of 3D things. I should point out I have boxes full of seven different iPhone lens ecosystems here that I'm be testing and uh, we're testing in the near future um, for future roundup review for MacWorld. So people who yeah, they're fun to play with, well, but are. I would never like. Just like use one and like, you know, just after messing with habit. them, just doing some initial testing, I'm like, oh my God, this changes everything because suddenly the great camera you have with you being able to do telephoto and macro is, is, uh, and all you have to do is carry a little bit of thing. It's, I'm going to be curious what I feel like after I test all these, if I'm like, okay, now I'm an iPhone lens guy, but it's hard. There's a leap you over. Yeah. Well, so two cameras. Yeah. So, um, Lytra used computational photography, which is one of my little, uh, areas of obsession I try to follow. Um, I'm a little behind in the field. Um, the idea with light, the idea with computational photography is that you can take, uh, the input from either live or later processed from multiple kinds of sources. So one example was that one of the fathers of the field, uh, parents of the field, um, who one of his students, uh, it was the founder of Lytro and, uh, he was on the board blanket on the guy's name. He released this, uh, this app that used iPhone video to stabilize images. And that sound, and when he did it a few years ago, he taught himself to do, I love people like this, taught himself to do iOS programming to release a free app so that he could gather more use behavior from people. And, uh, uh, so you you can do all kinds of so computational photography. You can do all kinds of things, but it usually involves capturing multiple images or different kinds of sensor data and combining it. <clears throat> so um, high def, uh, uh, high uh, um, oh, I'm forgetting this HDR. I can't remember what HDR high stands dynamic for. range. Thank you. You're I can never welcome. remember the name for that. We want to say high definition. High, HDR photography. I know we've talked about this before. Before that's actually a multiple. Uh, it's what we used to call bracketed shot, right? So you have a standard camera, mm -hmm. you would bracket, and then DSLRs uh, do automatic bracketing if you want, and it ch it changes a parameter. So it might do like an f-stop up and down beyond the one you've chosen or shutter speed or other things. So HDR, you essentially, it's a uh, if depending on what you do. So the iPhone does it automatically. It takes multiple rapid exposures, and it uses algorithms to combine them. So it's not like it just overlays them and goes, boom, you have one image. It figures out how to pull the dynamic range out and blend it among photos. That's why you get that sometimes hyper real effect, but the best HDR photos in normal use, you just get, you know, the clouds aren't blown out, right? Mm -hmm. Or the dark areas have some information in them. Um, and that's just with one lens taking a very rapid shots. Um, and there's software that lets you do this later. You can take bracketed images, import them into software, and have it do the computation. Then with two lenses, now I'm not seeing anything about 3D. There was earlier talk about that. The lenses may be very close together, so they may not be far enough apart to have a true stereoscopic effect. But having two lenses uh, means uh, you can take pictures. Depend. I, know, I don't know how the camera subsystem will work. If there's two entirely different camera subsystems to the level at which uh, you can have different focus or different f-stop or or uh, what have you if there's parameters that can be controlled you're essentially doing simultaneous bracketing and then you can combine that to produce a better image um i noticed one thing that was talked about in german's piece was about low light photography so in that case you could be pushing the iso and when you have two different lenses producing the same uh, of the same scene even if all the parameters like exposure and so forth are the same you can still combine those. And uh, because the pattern of pixelization of all that, like uh, dirt, um, the artifacts that appear in the darkest areas, you can cancel them out because they won't be identical between two simultaneous images because the photons won't have hit the actual sensors in the same way. So you might be able to take a photo in a really dark place and not be able to hold your camera perfectly still and yet get something that seems rich with depth and is stiller. So there's a lot of stuff that can be done. And then third-party apps, again, depending on how much access Apple gives to it, um, you might be able to take two different focus photos at the same time. So you have one near and one far and have two pictures. So you get the effect of having two focal planes for one shot. So I'm super excited. <laughs> was it an app called Stay Focus that you were talking about? No, it this? was... Because uh, there's... Oh, it'll kill me. It had a bokeh um, uh, thing, so you would actually walk around. It had a, a thing that lets you see where you were. Um, it, it would do the thing where the foreground was focused and the background is back is out of focus. Bokeh, B-O-K-E-H, if I'm pronouncing mm -hmm. it right. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, I can't remember the name, but I don't think it's still supported. Um, but it's uh, one of the people. There's there's a few people who really pioneered. Uh, the same guy uh, did the Franken camera, which was um, because you can do things like whenever you hear. I don't know if you've heard about this, where uh, uh, the idea that a, ca- a phone might have like 17 cameras on it, right? And it sounds ridiculous, and 17 is too many. Um, but uh, oh, it's Mark Lavoy. That's the fellow's name. So. Uh, Mark Lavoy. Oh, he's reti- he's, re- he's working at Google now. Of course. <laughs> just, just he's retired from Stanford University to work at Google. Um, I'm st- I'm stunned. SynthCam was the app. Oh, okay. Uh, although, yes, that's right, SynthCam. Um, and I don't think it's been updated for years. But uh, well, we'll get to, well. That may explain some of the stuff that's come out of Google Photos. In fact, which has a lot of computational photography aspects of it, including the uh, artificial scenes and panoramas that get developed there. That's cool. Well, there you go. Um, but so the uh, the uh, I'm forgot, I'm, I've lost my train of thought because I interrupted myself. Sorry, I asked you about the app. That was my fault. The app, but um, but so the 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 notion there though is that uh, uh, I think computational photography improves the ability to take good photos without having to work at it. If you don't want to change settings, if you do want to change settings, then you have a whole universe open to you. Um, I just like it as a feel. I mean, HDR, I think, transforms the way people take photos because you're less afraid to have a blown out or, you know, dark photo. I think Apple's really good at making the camera and the image, you know, software, the image capturing software experience um, really powerful, but also like really easy to use. So if I'm if I'm just pointing and shooting you know, there's going to be there's going to be things that help me. Um, but then, if if you are you know a big nerd and you want to to really dig into it, um, there's lots of stuff you can do. Oh, I know what I was saying. The Franken camera. So the thing is, the more cameras you have, uh, the more lenses you have, the more you can do combined things. And so there are various experiments. It's possible that we won't see just two lenses on an, on an iPhone now. I mean, we'll see those maybe in the iPhone 7, as is predicted, but it's possible there would be more lenses in the future um, or may, maybe more widely separated to do 3D. You have to have some distance, so maybe they would put some lenses at the top and bottom uh, because lenses and the camera uh, subsystems that drive them have become extremely inexpensive. I mean, you know, th- this is also what's driven... Uh, so robot cars, mm-hmm. self-driving cars, are driven in part, I mean, no, no pun intended, by the reduction in cost of optical subsystems. So I was talking to Mobileye last year, which until recently was Tesla's supplier, but they also work with most of the uh, major car companies uh, that are do- worldwide that are doing um, uh, self-driving car experiments. They make the lens systems and uh, all the software that drives it and work with these companies to do custom things. And I was like, you know, what, is there a point at which you have too many eyeballs on the car? And they're like, no, no, like we keep adding them because – the more cameras you have, the more information you can gather by combining the input from them and produce this greater holistic picture of what's going around the car, um, like depth. So right now, this would be something interesting for a future iPhone would be uh, there's uh, RGBD, I think is what it's called. It's it's a way to establish depth. Um, and you can do it by bouncing a laser off something, which is LiDAR. Uh, but you can also do it by having multiple cameras and combining information and you can create a 3d picture of the terrain around you. So um, it's not just like a 3d picture, like, Oh, it looks like 3d and you can rotate it or or walk around it, but it actually can measure the depth within it. Uh, And anyway, these are all things we can look forward to. So our phone could actually help us navigate. You could point it at something, point it at a room in your house and it would actually give you a plan. Like it could just pop up a plan, maybe identify the furniture in it. You bought that at Ikea. Um, you could put a painting here, you know, you could point it at a wall and say, could I hang a painting that's, or a picture that's this size there? It would say yes. And it'd give you a place to plot it. Like all of these things could be kind of fun and interesting. Yeah. So even if I never use that in the camera app, that could pop up in, in different apps that do completely different things. Yeah. It's really, it's very cool. So computational photography, I'm sorry, I go on and on about it because I love it, but it's, it's like such a low tech, high tech thing is a redundant amount of tiny, cheap camera lenses produce something that's tremendously better that than like a super high-end camera could do uh, because a super high-end camera has one, one lens. Packing a phone with cameras makes me think of the Fire Phone. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I mean, that's the downside. That it has four cameras on the front just so it can find your face and then, you know, figure out how far away your face is I and know. then move the, you know, graphics around on the screen as you move your head. 
You know when they say things are ahead of their time, it was ahead of its time in the wrong way. It was um, cool. It just didn't do anything was, really useful. I love comparing the Fire Phone with the Echo because they both came out of the same process. And somehow the Echo was a little more neglected. And as a result, it was able to transform itself during the project. I mean, there's that Fast Company. I think Fast Company wrote the long feature about it. And they also wrote the feature. Well, Fast Company wrote about the Fire Phone's Homer car um, history, and Bezos was too involved with it, and they listened to him too much, and they shaped it too much to be this thing that he wanted instead of what was needed, and they should have pushed back more. At Echo, kind of, I think it got neglected a bit, and it kind of got rebooted a few times. So what became out of it is something that's eminently useful and went through this maturation process, and it's only, from everything I hear, gets better and better as they integrate more services. So. Yeah, but it wasn't like they were insisting to build this one thing. They were just like, well, let's yeah. build this thing and see what it can do. Yeah, it was cool. Um, well, so moving on, uh, we can no longer laugh at currency. This is very sad. I'm very sad to not be able to laugh at that <laughs> payment system. But hey, we can laugh at whatever we want to laugh at. CVS. So here's where I feel like I I feel like I underestimated what currency was about. I will confess this. So I tested Walmart Pay when that came out a few weeks ago on its you nationwide. Really liked wallet. it. I I did because, and I'm not a Walmart customer. We don't have. It's not a uh, spite Did we talk or... about this on the podcast yet? I'll put it in the show notes. What's that? The Walmart pay? I don't even yeah. remember. Maybe maybe not. I think it came during this week. I don't think week. we did, yeah. Well, th- there's no Walmart within... Two- I had to drive 30 minutes to a Walmart, so I can't... I'm not, it's not really like a regular... <laughs> it's to take one for the team. Thank so you. so terrible. I went there and then I ate at uh, P- uh, Panino or whatever that place is called. Uh, that was the only place I could and- find the toy that my kid wanted for, for Christmas. And I went in there and I was like... I hadn't been in there in years and like, oh, the bargains. I wanted to buy like 10 things. Oh my I, God. I wasn't even like, you know, past the registers yet. And I already saw like 10 things I, I wanted to buy. I'm going to tell the punchline first. If I haven't told okay. this before, is I went in, I'm like, I need to buy something. Like, ah, we have a, we need to get an inexpensive little clock for our dining room so that my younger son doesn't lose track of time and spend an hour and a half at the table at, you know, eating or something. I mean, he just eats very slowly, which I know is desirable, but this is um, Zootopia sloth level slowness uh not in the morning you got places to go exactly so we i was like oh lynn's mike my wife's like get a clock all right so find a clock at six dollars and fifty cents or something like this is awesome it's perfect it's battery operated small buy it the walmart pay experience is wonderful get it home doesn't work and i'm like am i gonna drive an hour (laughs) round trip to replace a six dollar like no i took you know um i would if i go back i will still do it but um i know it's terrible it's disposable tech talk knowledge but so walmart pay so walmart and uh cvs and a number of other retailers were part of are still remain part of this mcx this consortium that was intended to be a way for retailers to get away from paying the high fees that they think are high associated with accepting credit card processing and all the stuff they pay there and they wanted to get a direct relationship with customers and it's admirable at some level because um you know, they're trying to reduce the cost, which, which because they're in a competitive environment, reducing the cost of processing could actually translate into lower consumer prices. Maybe higher margins, but there's so much competition, maybe not. Um, so uh, Walmart Pay was the first, I would say, I think the first from the MCX consortium where they uh, they released an app that um, – so Walmart still doesn't do uh, touch-based uh, uh, NFC payment – but you set, Walmart already had an app, and they basically just added this. You can bring your Walmart.com uh, account into it, essentially. So I'd already bought stuff online from Walmart.com. Uh, you can add credit cards. You do it all ahead of time. And you go in there, and you basically just – it shows a, um, a checkout. It has a little display. They've got their own point-of-sale system. It shows a 2D barcode. You scan it with the app, and it – talks to the register and does the whole thing. And they're like, okay, you're done. They don't even give you a receipt. The receipt is in the app and you walk out. So you got to show that to a checker if they're going to check you on the way out. There was nobody when I went. The place was entirely empty, basically. Um, so they didn't try to check my goods on the way out. Uh, but um, now CVS has a somewhat similar app. And as Caitlin wrote about, they didn't just, uh, on Macworld.com, they didn't just make a payment app, they've integrated three different kinds of things into one app. And that's what's making it um, more desirable. It's like Starbucks. You can preload your Starbucks card and have a virtual card, but it also counts your affinity program stuff and gives you coupons and specials and alerts. And it's like, hey, you bought this in the morning. If you come back this afternoon, you get $2 off a sandwich. Like that is a consumer benefit that makes you get into their payment I love system. The Starbucks app. You can order ahead now. Yeah, I, I've tried it, although it didn't go very well the first time because they didn't have a 
It can area. be a little awkward. You couldn't figure out where to pick it up. And then eventually I figured it out that they, they knew they had something for me. Um, but CVS Pay is kind of an integrated loyalty pharmacy payment thing. And again, it's a barcode, but I've contended the problem with currency and why we laughed at it is you could only use your home, you know, your checking account, which has fewer protections. It seemed like a hassle. There were going to be different approaches. So you'd have to learn as a consumer different things to do. Um, you were going to have to maybe, you know, scan a thing. In this case, it's like you're in the store. If you have Passbook uh, integrated, it'll come up as an app. It's a separate app for each store, which is inconvenient at one level. But if you already do loyalty card stuff, it's not. Same thing with Walmart. Like if you shop at Walmart all the time, you may already have the app installed. So this is not like an extra step for you. Um, have you had to do, you haven't yet had to do any barcode based payment, right? Because you've been in the, you've only done Apple Pay at checkout. Well, I do um, Starbucks, and that's barcode-based. Yeah, and that's never bothered me. I mean, in that case, yeah, you're that scanning. Yeah, that doesn't bother me either. But it's kind of like the CVS, like you said. I mean, there's different things in there. Um, they have a couple, like, kind of silly features. Like, they'll tell you what's playing at the Starbucks, and, you know, you can download that song sometimes, like, right to your iPhone and save it. Um, you can order head. So, so there's sort of, like, more reasons to have the app than just to pay and that's what it sounds like cvs is trying to do so you know they're a drugstore and you can manage your prescriptions you can have your health savings account sometimes they give you a separate debit card for that and you can um you don't have we wouldn't have to carry that you could put that in your phone if you did all your your prescription shopping at cvs and that would be kind of convenient um so so it's better than just you know yeah, you have this you have this extra app you have to use to pay um, because Apple Pay, I mean, you know, you can get to it so easily with a uh, double tap of the home button or, um, you know, on your on your watch. So you don't have to, you know, unlock your phone, go into an app, open it up. So. So, yeah, if, if they want you to do that, they have to give you a lot of reasons. And it sounds like CVS is is doing that. But there is a weird twist that Caitlin points out in her article that is um, so CVS Pharmacy manages Target's pharmacy. Yeah, yeah. And Target is getting Apple Pay. So you'll be able to use Apple Pay at Target, but not at the pharmacy. Oh, so that's, that's hilarious. That's going to be that's irritating for people. Really awkward. Yeah, well, you know, and the reason that, that these outfits don't want to use Apple Pay is it's really not about the NFC or the um, Apple Pay or Android Pay or Samsung Pay or any of that. It's really uh, about the credit card fees, which Apple can't, you know, get rid of credit card fees. Their Apple takes a very tiny slice of the transaction, and partly by reducing the um, opportunity for fraud, they make a little more money than a lot of processors do at that level. Uh, and uh, that is still all in the credit card or debit card system. So um, the retailers are trying to avoid those fees. And then they, if they do their own thing, then they can get the data too. Like Apple That's doesn't right. pass along any data as to like well, who you are and what you bought. I'm trying to remember too, uh, CVS, and I know I read this story. I'm trying to remember, do they, they'll they let you link in a credit card though, right? Because that was part of the deal with, um, with uh, or a debit card. That was part of the deal with uh, uh, currencies that you're going to have to link like your probably your checking account. At least they talked about that for a mm -hmm. while. Now in um, Caitlin's story, she doesn't mention. This mentions a debit card. Yeah, it debit card. debit cards, rewards card, and uh, your HSA or flexible savings. Right, so you still have protections card. with a debit card if you use the account as opposed to linking in a credit, a checking account. Checking accounts have protections too. It's just more of a hassle. I hear uh, constantly stories about people having trouble with unauthorized credit or checking account transactions and it's not the same thing. Your bank is not your friend in that case. Your bank typically views you as suspicion and you're a hassle. Or with credit cards or a debit card transaction that's processed through a network, uh, even if it's processed through your bank, you have in the United States, you have federal protections, you have uh, attorney general protect, you know, state protections, the attorney general's office enforces, and uh, you also have the credit card companies basically acting on your behalf. They want people to charge. So if you have a problem, they typically stand on your side and the merchant is the one who has to defend it. So that's that's uh that's part of it. So I would never link my checking account into anything like that. But debit card. Yeah, Target is, is fine. always trying to get me to link up my checking accounts. Ooh, no, they yeah, Target. Give, they want to give me like a separate debit uh, card that's like linked to my checking no, account, and then no. but then I'll pay. I'll save like five percent, and no. I'm just not I'm not into it. 
but my brother's done it. He swears by it. I don't know. I know. There's yeah. all these ways to save, but I think the best, I like to do price comparison shopping as opposed to all the things. Local, the Kroger chain, our local version is QFC, it used to be an independent thing, and they give us gas points. So we give them our data using an old phone number, actually. And uh, somebody may get that phone number, so we have to fix that. Otherwise, we'll be stealing their gas points. Um, but I we, get the gas points from Safeway, and their app is awesome. Oh, I haven't used Safeway. <laughs> for QSC, we, like, we buy stuff, they give us points. We sometimes get uh, 80 cents off a gallon for gas, and um, totally worthwhile. But that's I, I'm willing to sell my information to a grocery store for that benefit. Yeah, oh, me too. I don't. They have a huge file on me. I've been using the Safeway rewards thing for years, but the app is really file. good. They keep making it better. They just updated it again. It'll if you tell it what store you're going to, it'll sort everything by aisle. Oh, that's um, wild! And a lot of times there's a free thing. Like if it's a new product they just started carrying, like there were these Magnum ice cream bars, which the name made me giggle, <laughs> but um, they were pretty good. And they were like, okay, yeah, this is a new product, so you get a free box. But then later, when in subsequent weeks, when you're sort of looking through the list of like what's on sale that week, they prioritize things you already bought. So by giving you the free thing, then they've kind of put that product in your, you know, I buy these products list, and then they just keep pushing it at you like again and again and again. So so I'm like, nope, I got those ice cream bars when they were free, but I'm not going to be buying them. Thank you. I'm sending you a joke on Twitter right now that I can't say on the air. So people <laughs> can find it about Magnum ice cream bars. Yeah, yeah. No, I made that joke on Twitter. It was really funny. That's They're good, good though. Uh, oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> Well, speaking of uh, people using our information without our permission, or maybe with our permission, uh, the ad blocker wars. Ad wars! Dun, 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 dun. Um, so now we have ad blocker, 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 blockers. Um, <laughs> so, so the, the ad blockers war is, all the way so, down. So rather than solve the underlying problem, which is uh, ad technology, actually, I'll reverse the order of something we're talking about here, too. So Facebook. Well, the, the main topic here is that Facebook is putting anti-ad blocking, has rolled it out, you know, ways to d divert them. But the On reason the that ad blocking exists um, is twofold. The reason people have adopted it. The one is because um, people don't like advertising at all. They find it intrusive, whatever. The other is because of how the ads are delivered. And that's like a two-part. One is autoplay video, which everyone hates, and I'm sorry, listeners, that we do it, can't control it, um, autoplay video, and um, other things like things, I was trying to, uh, a friend at Cards Against Humanity said, oh, there's a great article about our uh, Trump-Clinton uh, fundraising thing that we're doing at a site I won't mention to not embarrass them. And I click on the link, and I go there, and it has like one of those floaty ads at the top, and I scroll down, the ad takes over the screen. So that's great. It's got an X button. I click the X button. It launches the site for the ad. I'm like, that's not oh, cool. Yeah. I close the site ad. I go back. Those the X's X are hard to click on mobile. The X button doesn't work. I cannot, nothing I do gets rid of the full screen ad. Yeah. That I, so I can't read the article. I reload the page and whatever. Ad technology, the ad tech networks are terrible. I know. It makes you miss the days of like the banner ad with the, the, the you know, blinking like, you know, the the strobe banner ads. Like, those were so much better than what oh, we have now. <laughs> I know, I know. We look back in fondness with those kinds of things. But so ad technology is so horrible that, you know, some so some people do it philosophically. Like, I don't want to see ads, whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah, well, the ads pay for this. So, But the, the part that I get into and the reason I run Ghostry and I very selectively block certain networks that are trouble, troubling. So when I go to Macworld, I see all the ads. I don't get a lot of other stuff behind it. I go to The Economist. I went to TheEconomist.com once and 70 tracking things loaded, 70 oh, on a goodness. single page. And I disable stuff that's tracking beacons, whatever, because they're, trying, they're running JavaScript, they slow the machine down. Some of them have had problems with malicious people getting involved in like placing advertising, like whatever. So um, the ad tech networks are run terribly. So that part of, you know, it's one thing when, when it, get, it gets cast in terms of consumers revolting against advertising, it's like, no, consumers are revolting against their batteries being run down, their screens being taken over, autoplay video, and then also the stuff that's underneath. So I wrote, uh, I don't know if the column's up as we talk about this. My latest private eye is about a uh, new uh, web uh, exploit. I don't know if that's up. The one about the um, third-party cookies. Hmm. Doesn't sound familiar. It's from last week. Well, it'll be up at some point. Folks. <laughs> I turned it in last week. Um, it's not perishable. But so there's a. Oh a, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not remember. Right. It's all the way. It's so, going to be up today. <laughs> so the, a couple weeks ago, um, the researchers came out with this uh, discussion of how the way the modern web is so complicated and interesting. It's really rich to make web apps run better. 
and that allows more opportunities for exploits. So they discovered that even though you can uh, – so a JavaScript JavaScript code running on a web page, so you visit site, you know, uh, maliciousscam.com, right? You go there, and it's running all this JavaScript. Well, scripts can request behind the scenes – pages and resources from other sites. However, because of this thing called same origin policy, which has been encoded in the web for like two decades, the script, even though the request is made, the script can't see the results. So in this modern rendition of it, how this all works behind the scenes is there's a lot of more threading and independent operations. So a page, a malicious script can request information. And while it can't see the results, the researchers discovered that it can measure enough information about the response and send a bunch of different queries and know what might be on a page, like a Gmail, a page for another account. They can actually extract information uh, even without loading the page. And uh, one of the main ways to prevent this from happening is to disable third-party cookies, uh, which are cookies for content that's loaded into the same page that you're viewing on another site. So I'm at apple.com, and it loads Google Analytics. It doesn't, but something like that. Um, And you can find this setting all over the place. The column has details about how to disable it. Third-party cookies are often used by ad tech networks in order to let them serve content from somewhere else and still track you. So disabling third-party cookies doesn't prevent ads from being served. It prevents you from being tracked. And then they have other techniques they use to track you as well. Um, but I bring this up because ad blockers, like, you know, there's all this different philosophical stuff. Facebook, Susie, Facebook is trying to, you know, do the anti-missile defense thing here. They're like, all right, well, that's fine. You run an ad blocker. We're going to change how we feed out ads so they don't look like ads to the blockers. Um, that only works so much. <laughs> we already have the ad blocker blocker, right? We have the – and then the ad blocker software, the like people from – was it Adblock Plus? I've forgotten which one. Um, they've then updated their software so now it can detect you know, the anti-blocker ads and it will now block those. I don't know. Yeah, it's blockers all the way down. That's what it feels I'm like. I'm like you. I run Ghostery because I want to see like you know what's on these sites. But then any site that I visit with any regularity, I just whitelist. And when I see you know people linking to sites where I go there and there's a big ad, like you know if I can't dismiss it, I'll try to dismiss it. If I can't dismiss it, I will just stop going to that site. And I realize that um, you know that that works both ways. And we've definitely heard people say that they've stopped coming <laughs> to Macworld because of our annoying autoplay videos, which are really annoying. But then, you know, as I go around the web, like everyone's like ESPN does that and CNN and New York times and everyone kind of does that. So, so I don't feel like quite as dirty anymore, but I know it is annoying. And, you know, as I've said here before, and I will keep saying that we keep asking them to turn it off and they keep telling us no. So, <laughs> uh, just, I mean, I don't. I cannot believe it's effective relative to the number of people who are driven away. My next away. project is to make videos without talking. So you know those videos that come up on Facebook where it's just like oh, they yeah, show yeah. you some hands making a recipe and like so I'm going to do that, but like with you know iPhone tips and Apple Watch tips and stuff. Oh. So maybe that won't be so annoying if there's like some like a little twee music playing, but at least like you don't hear my voice going like, "Hey guys, now we're going to show you this thing or whatever." Single best feature of Safari. And some of the videos that get served there for mm-hmm. like Windows 10 tips and stuff which makes it seem like we don't know the difference between Mac and Windows which we do but you know again I don't control I know, that I, spot I just I know this is the problem with the business side and the editorial side is usually the twain are separate <laughs> it's great when there's a Chinese wall between them it prevents you know editorial issues yeah. the flip side and is I could I, spend my whole day like trying to you know work on this but eventually I have to just go make the donuts yeah yeah it's um well this is what I like about uh, I mean this is sorry that's, to go off on that no, this is actually a case of it too is I I have uh, click to flash or click to play media stuff installed. I've got all kinds of other things in place and the IG videos play. Even I don't have flash. I haven't flash completely uninstalled and they, they play on. They play because <laughs> they check that I don't have flash One of them installed. just played a few minutes ago it, while I was trying to look something up. It tries to show the flash video. It fails and then it loads it in a different format. So yeah. I feel like that is pushing the window when someone has actually actively done a step to say, I don't want to see videos and then you do it. So Yeah, that used to work. Just like don't have flash or have 
click to flash, but like that just doesn't seem to work anymore. Well, this is and that's why the ad blockers like there's going to be a there's going to be ad blockers that are going to block any attempt to load any video because HTML5 video is even more specifically tailored. So I should be able to get an ad blocker that says when a container with HTML5 video tag. And I like video. I just want to be able to choose. No, that's the thing. When I don't it want. Plays. I don't want my screen to be felt like I. I want. I am paid via advertising. I don't mind advertising. I don't want advertising to be the malware that it is today. I mean, advertising has essentially become malware and, uh, you know, at some level, like it does stuff without your permission or control and it subverts your intent. What's the definition of malware? Well, it doesn't steal my credit card information. It steals my attention. Um, so I'm in favor of ads, not in favor of ads that bypass my intent and uh, interest and try to talk at me. Uh, all right, we'll move on from that. But the uh, <laughs> so actually speaking of Flash, speaking for a of moment, Flash, yeah, well, we've been talking a lot. You know, Flash is getting um, put more and more. Uh, it's been relegated to uh, the waste bin and more more places. And now we have some more good news, which is that uh, uh, Google is moved uh, faster in its strategy to get rid of Flash. We just saw Firefox uh, a couple weeks ago. I'm sorry, the Mozilla Foundation that makes Firefox explain what they were going to do and to, you know, kind of push it out. Google's plan is like, what do they say? I think it's 90% of Flash. I believe that's what they said. 90% of Flash is, um, yeah, is it loads behind the scenes to support things like page analytics is what they say. And, and they know because they're monitoring this stuff. Uh, so they're going to start blocking all of the behind the scenes use of Flash all the things because though you know there's ways to do it in HTML5 and ad networks it's a investment you know they have to move over to the technology that people are at uh, and it's not like they will be unable to continue to develop analytics and do other kind of tracking it's just going to be a different other control the the elimination of flash is good too cuz flash is like software running inside your browser that you have no access to. It's a total black box. And so one of the techniques of tracking people over time is using uh, ever cookies where a cookie is dropped in as a flash. There's a flash object on a page that exists entirely to duplicate the cookie that was sent to your browser. And, and uh, networks that are even considered legitimate will often drop the same token that identifies you in all kinds of places. And some of those have now been closed up as holes using third-party cookie blocking can help uh, prevent that as well. There's issues with storage, like you don't want to allow sites to use HTML5-based storage in your browser unless you give permission. And you'll get to a point where there's too many things it's asking you to do. Location, storage, permission, cookies, fly, ah, stop asking me. But... These are all ways in which they subvert the intent of the user to not be tracked. So Google is going to drop uh, more of those. And then eventually um, it said uh, HTML, yeah, it's pushing exactly the same approach Apple is, I think, which is that the next version of Safari will not tell a site what kind of multimedia plugins are installed. And if the site cannot deliver HTML5 versions of things, you'll have the option to uh, click and do something else uh, in Safari and Google is going to be somewhat similar. It's like, you'll be prompted for flash only if the site only supports flash. Uh, and eventually I think it's going to only, it's going to limit that to uh, top flash using sites and then buy flash river. So if you have a restaurant and it still has a flash site, oh my God. you know, I, I never <laughs> you should have that redesigned down. that years ago, but now you really have to. I meant to, I meant to research that years ago. I, I forget if I pitched that to somebody, but it's, I assume there was like a couple companies that built totally generic flash programs and it cost them like 15 cents to update it for a different restaurant. Like they'd get assets and they'd pay somebody yeah. in, you know, Bangladesh to, you know, five cents to plop the new stuff in and create a new flash object because they were all terrible and they're all very similar and flash isn't easy to create, especially years ago. So I assumed it was like a restaurant consulting website group that basically ruined the entire experience for everyone <laughs> by pushing that instead of just flat menus, they could have just had basic, you know, HTML pages. Given how often they were updated. I was just, like, this morning, I was, I've ran into a Flash restaurant menu. I'm just like, oh. It's uh, it's funny. You'd think by now they might. Well, a lot of restaurant sites get abandoned. They put something up, and then it's, like, seven years later. There's, yeah. You know, you're still there. It's like, it says on your menu. You're like, oh, it's we like don't even update It's like a Flash Splash page and a link to, like, a PDF menu. Yelp then, is like, the best phone thing. phone number. You go to Yelp first, and it links to a site, but it often has the menus hosted and confirmed Ooh, by people who've Yelp. gone there. Yelp is good. Yelp is very reliable. Do you find Yelp reliable in your use of it in terms of how you feel about a restaurant relative to what it says before you go? You know, I have switched from Yelp to Foursquare. Interesting. Yeah. 
I think their recommendations are a little better. Yelp, like sometimes the reviews are just like, I just wrote this because I su- think I'm super clever and I want to show you all how clever I am. Um, Foursquare seems a little more useful to me. Mm-hmm. And you can tell it kind of like what you like, like specific things. So you're not like, oh, I like steakhouses, but you're just like, you know what? I really like twice baked potatoes. Oh. And then every time like that comes up, like they'll tell you. Oh, and that's then if you're cool. if you're near something you like, it'll ping you. I don't know how many of these things Yelp does, but yeah. So it's like because they split Foursquare. It used to be like the check-in thing. You try to be like the mayor of whatever, yeah. and they split that up. So now the check-in is uh, something else, and Foursquare is just like it's just straight up Yelp, but it's better. And then like I mean, Yelp had that terrible um, reputation for like shaking down businesses that didn't want to advertise, and like all of a sudden your best have... reviews get kind of buried, and you're crappy reviews are surfaced that and seems to have sorted it out i don't know if it was because yeah, of investigations. I, haven't, I haven't heard about that as much anymore it's been, but pretty, it's been pretty reliable i had a plumber come out a few years ago because i found him on yelp and i was trying to find somebody and he had like 35 star reviews and i was like how does that work for you it's like it's terrible the phone rings all the time and there's just one of me and i don't want to hire people so it was actually bad <laughs> he, <laughs> he, I think he was trying to get it taken down or something because like i have too much business like oh my god the problem of too much business um yeah whenever i uh, used to travel a little bit more than i do now i'm a little, I'm a little landlocked at the moment uh home locked um but when i travel more you know i'd be driving somewhere fly somewhere i would pull out yelp and just uh, it it was generally pretty good so even the negatives was like this is great but you might find whatever and i'd go there and be like yep that was great and i was prepared for that so i didn't order it or you know i knew i had to ring cash or whatever um it was fun so yeah no more flash restaurant sites it'll be awesome uh, so a little, just a little more on the um, on the what's coming this fall front. It sounds like there's now rumors brewing about more kinds of iPad models. Uh, I, I'm just bringing this up because I think uh, there was a point, you know, not very far ago, long ago, where Apple had kind of one form factor at a time for the iPhone and one for the iPad. Now they have three, four form factors for the iPad, four form factors for the iPad, right? The Air, the Mini. The 9.7-inch iPad Pro, the 12.9-inch iPad Pro, and they have three form factors for the iPhone. Um, and this doesn't seem to bother Apple the way it used to. So it's like seven I mean, form factors. the Air and the 9.7-inch iPad Pro are basically the same. They have the same resolution? They're close or the same? Same resolution. Okay. Um, the, the iPad Pro has um, you know pencil support and that True Tone thing going on. Um, but that's it. It's it's the same right, like so size and weight. Six and, form factors. It sounds like there'll be more. Well, it's got like a, you know a, a more speakers. It's got that dual speaker thing. Oh yeah. Um. So, but yeah, I don't know. They're 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 close. But yeah, I would say three iPads and three iPhones. And yeah, they're talking about squishing in a fourth iPad. So like a medium sized iPad Pro. Like you could get the nine point seven inch, which is the standard iPad size we've loved since the beginning. And then you can get the big 12.9 inch, which I thought was too big, but I mean, I'm a small screen person. And yeah, now they're talking about doing a 10.5 inch, which is sort of right in the middle. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what sort of benefit that would give you over 9.7. I I don't know. It seems a little strange to me. Well, I think they're still trying trying to sort out the next generation of form factors. But the the iPad mini might go away, it sounds like. It's one of the potentials. You'll have a a small iPad. That's a good one, though. I like the iPad mini. Maybe it won't. Before the Pro came out, I was was a mini iPad fan. Maybe they'll sell the latest model indefinitely. They used to with um, outdated ones. But um, it is funny. I mean, the the, uh, the 6 Plus form factor, 6S, plus phone form factor and uh it feels like they figured out i thought they had all the niches figured out for size from big to little but um and phone and ipad but maybe not i don't think they should get rid of the ipad mini even if they bring out a new size like i think they should do a fourth size because when they got rid of the small iphone you know that was a lot of people didn't upgrade their iphones yeah, and then when they put out the iPhone SE, they were surprised by how many people wanted that. So I think the iPad mini would be the same way. I mean, it's a bargain. It's $100 less than the big ones. And it does pretty much everything. The fourth generation one will do all the um, the multitasking things. We don't think. know their sales is the problem, so it's possible it's really tanking. It maybe it may be so low that they it's just want to get rid of it. But then, tanking, yeah. you know, reinventing, that's the thing, is like reinventing it maybe what they do in a year or two um, and come back with a new thing in that form factor that's got other kinds of features. I don't know. I mean, um, the other thing that was... It's the perfect size to put, like, in a car dashboard. Mm-hmm. 
The mini is cool. It seems like a good size. I've never owned one. It doesn't work for me. I'm not a big iPad person, although I do love the iPad uh, Pro 9.7 inch. I bought one of those for testing, so I have an up-to-date iPad, and it is pretty amazing. It's pretty great. Um, uh, one, okay, so one last thing on this week's episode uh, is uh, batteries for USB-C devices. Uh, and this ties in with the iPad Pro. I just did a, another round of testing uh, that picks up on the work I did earlier this year. We reviewed four USB battery packs that had USB-C, uh, USB-C, I'm saying that right, four USB battery packs that had four, that have USB-C ports on them. That's what I'm trying to say. Shoot. Um, so I did that four <laughs> earlier this year. Uh, Rav, it's from what, Rav Power, Anchor, Talent Cell, and a fourth that I'm blanking out the name. Oh, it was a Monoprice uh, battery, uh, which was kind of a generic label that they labeled. Um, and... We're looking into, we knew new ones were coming out and there are enough, uh, there's several new ones out there. And of seven that I could kind of confirm existed, I was able to get four in and uh, did a round of testing. Those will be up soon at macworld.com. So if you have a MacBook uh, 2015 or 2016 model, this is a way to power your device uh, when you're away from electricity. And uh, all the batteries I tested this time pretty much fill a MacBook. You can do almost a full charge, something like 80 to 100% of a battery, um, and sometimes have some left over. Uh, in one case, the most ex- uh, the biggest one I tested, which is truly massive, it's like 114 watt hours. It could charge a MacBook twice, but it charges very, it charges very slowly, so you can't really. The current generation of batteries doesn't charge while you're using it. So you really need to put it to sleep. But you could do a thing where you put it to sleep for 30 minutes, you get 40% charge on the thing, you open up, use it for another hour or two. So there's like a little bit of a staging thing you have to do. Um, But here's the other part is uh, that the iPad Pro, when the 12.9-inch model came out, it only comes with a 12-watt charger, but it can actually charge much faster. People figured this out right away, but there wasn't an adapter that would let you connect to a way to get more wattage to it. And then people discovered, I mean, Apple shipped, I should say, a lightning to USB-C cable, which seemed like a weird item. However, if you plug that into uh, Apple's adapter, you suddenly can charge your iPad Pro 12.9 inch at like twice the speed. Um, and so it's got a big battery. It's got like a, I forget what it is, 30 watt hours, huge battery in the iPad Pro, the bigger one. Uh, and so this is a way to charge it much more rapidly instead of, you know, it takes hours and hours with a 12 watt uh, charger. And the same thing, the iPad Pro 9.7 inch model also can charge faster than the 10 watt adapter that comes with it. So if you're a heavy iPad Pro user, you can now take a USB-C equipped battery with you, not just for capacity, but for speed. And um, so you can recharge it much more rapidly or be using it while recharging it as well. So that's uh, another another aspect to um, these newer, cheaper, better, bigger uh, external batteries. And at some point, we'll get new MacBook Pros that will use Thunderbolt 3, and Thunderbolt 3 employs the USB-C connector and is intercompatible with USB-C, and USB rather, so these batteries will then be useful, and we'll probably see bigger ones uh, for MacBook Pros as well. Do you think when the MacBook Pro gets that, that they would, um, like like on the, the 12-inch MacBook, get rid of MagSafe, or do you think they would have both. Oh, I think they'll get rid of MagSafe. I, I could be wrong. I mean, the, the USB-C spec allows for up to 100 watts of power over the appropriate cable, and there's a whole bunch of issues with cabling. In my testing, I had a cable that supposedly was certified for power. It was labeled. It was supposed to be able to do more than 15 watts. 15 watts is like one mark on the power. That Like, there's cables that can do up to 15 watts. There's another standard that's still unclear to me where that is. Like, it's another substandard. But the maximum spec is 100 watts. So when you get an Apple, um, when you get a MacBook, it comes with a 29-watt power brick, and it comes with a cable, USB-C to USB-C, that can charge 29 watts uh, over it, right? So this cable, I'm using this to test. I'm like, I'm getting terrible results. This can't be right. I put in a different cable. I, I swap in Apple's cable, and all of a sudden, things are charging faster. And this was even before I was charging above the 15-watt limit that a lot of the batteries I tested use. So it should have worked even with that cable. 
I wound up buying a cable, a black squid cable recommended by the Google engineer who's been reviewing USB-C products on Amazon, uh, Benson Leong. You can go and find his reviews. And I'm linking to it in the article. Um, and I bought this black squid cable for 13 bucks, and it worked perfectly with every device. So there's even that as an issue too. So a MacBook Pro, maybe it needs to pull 40 watts or 45 watts. I don't know what the device will actually, the laptop will need to pull. It should still be able to work with any existing device most of the batteries cannot put out more than 15 watts of charge, so it's a very slow trickle. They have to be put to sleep uh, to charge. And so that's the next generation of what's going to happen. Uh, I can talk a little bit about more of that after the reviews are out, too, because that's kind of an interesting topic for people. And then it should all go wireless. wireless yeah, just you know, use a lightning bolt. Yeah. Fire a lightning gun at your laptop and immediately it's filled with charge. Um, well, you should just be able to like put it down on your desk and then come back and it's charged. I like it, but it, it's only works for to charge everything. smaller devices. I don't think they have a good, I mean, you need like a, a like a contact yeah. plate or something, but maybe someday, I think the physics may it's uh, defeat us. still a few us. years out. Every CES, it's always like an intriguing topic. Like how, how much further are we? Susie, you cannot change the laws of physics. <laughs> It's, it's coming apart. Um, but I mean, like, everything needs to be charged. Like, the amount of devices that I'm having to keep charged is just, it's more and more all the time. Like, now I've got my watch, and then pretty soon, like, Apple thinks I'm going to have charged headphones wait, but your all watch the time. does inductive charging. Yeah, but I mean, I just, it's another thing I have to think about charging. <laughs> yeah. They need to make it like, they need, there's a lot of friction there they need to remove. Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, definitely something that could come but there are i think there's a limitation on the amount of power you'll ever be able to get across uh, some kind of you know contact or wireless system but we'll see we'll see i think that brings us to the end of this week's podcast a quiet news week plenty to talk about and uh we'll be back again with another one in a week Susie, great to talk to you as always always a pleasure and uh, this has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 521 for August 17th, 2016. I have been Andrew Bain, Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld. And you can find us at macworld.com. Email us, podcast at macworld.com. Find us on the Twitter machine. We're at Macworld, of course, but also at SFSoz, S-F-S-O-O-Z, like Zed, or at Glenn F, G-L-E-N-N-F. You can find us there. Tell us what you think, what you want to talk about, how your summer's going. And we'll be back again next week.